Welcome, everyone, to Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I always strive here on this show to bring you stories that I think you may have never heard of, or at least I feel need a more complete telling of their life. So often, these subjects are heads of state, generals, conquerors, real men of ambition. And it's rare when I find a subject that was none of these things, and still vital, perhaps more vital, to human history than these other types. One of the difficulties in doing a biographical podcast on someone who was no more than a mere peasant is in the dearth of credible information. Thankfully, our subject today was not only discovered around 1960, but an entire volume of his correspondence has been published. And since then, his life story has been made into what I am told is a beautiful film, which I have yet to see. One final thing that I'd like to touch on before we get going here is that my absolute favorite people in history are always those outliers who can see the coming disaster when no one else can. We take these people for granted whenever we look back at world-changing events. And with 2020 hindsight, the outcomes are obvious, right? But in these moments when so many people are wrong or blind, there's always a few people who see things for what they really are. These people as I said, are my favorite people in history, and I think they may be the most important people in history. Sometimes these most important people are but simple peasants, just like our subject today, and his name is Franz Jägerstadter in Final Perseverance. On a hot summer night in Austria, 1938, Franz Jägerstadter lay awake in his bed. He was having trouble falling asleep, and he eventually drifted off into some sort of trance or dream. Franz began to make out a tall mountain with a railroad track circling up towards the summit. As he focused in on that black shining engine pulling the boxcars behind, he saw great masses of people, but mostly children, rushing forth to board the train. They were filled with such a frightful zeal that no force on earth could hold them back. As Franz looked on, a terrifying voice rang in his head, quote, This train is going to hell. End quote. A presence then gripped his hand and pulled him away. He then heard the voice sigh, and a bright light shone all around him. The visions disappeared, and Franz awoke in his bed, released from his terrible nightmare. 
Franz Jägerstadter was born May 20th, 1907, in Upper Austria, in the small little town of St. Radegund. Imagine, to yourself, a quintessential Austrian village nestled in the hills and mountains of Austria, and you might imagine St. Radegund. The ancient homes with gravel paths lead to an old church overlooking a river, and the steeples of Bavaria can be seen five miles away. In the center of town, you'd find all the necessities to European life for the past few hundred years. The bakery, the general store, the inns and taverns. There's even a little playhouse that had a reoccurring passion play in which young Franz played the part of a Roman soldier during the last moments in the life of Christ. St. Radegund, for as long as recorded history could fathom, was a Catholic community. And less than 20 miles from this quiet, Catholic village, also in Upper Austria, and less than 20 years before the birth of Jägerstadter, was born Adolf Hitler. Franz Jägerstadter was the illegitimate son of Franz Bachmeier, who died in World War I while Franz was a child. His mother then married Herr Jägerstadter, who adopted Franz as his own son. As Franz grew, he became particularly close to his maternal grandmother, who is remembered to be a Catholic of distinct piety and devotion. From his stepfather, he inherited his farmlands and carried on the age-old peasant lifestyle. In Franz's youth, he was remembered by his contemporaries as notably ordinary, but to his friends, he was also known as fun, jolly, and sort of a he-man type at times, if not hot-blooded. When the young men of the town were up to some wild shenanigans, you could be sure that Franz was in the middle of it. He was athletic, an avid dancer, and he was quite the passionate card player, too. Such an energetic and charismatic young man was also no doubt popular among the young women of St. Radegund and remembered fondly by them long after World War II. He would often leave his small village to seek temporary employment in the larger cities of northern Austria and making decent money at that. One day, he returned proudly back into town, with the wind in his face, astride a brand new motorcycle, the first in St. Radegund. Everyone in St. Radegund remembers his motorcycle. The village of St. Radegund, like other ancient towns of Austria, had a handful of strange traditions for otherwise devout religious communities. The first strange tradition can only be described as a town gang, made up of the young men who would dispense vigilante justice in response to some sort of wrongdoing. The second tradition was a unique yet effective way to ensure a young woman got the husband that she had her eye on, often at the urging of her own mother. This was, of course, to seduce, with a little effort to be sure, the young man of her heart's desire. Upon a confirmed pregnancy, the young man was obliged then to tie the knot to preserve the honor of all three involved. If the young man refused to do what he ought, also known as, quote, letting her sit, the town gang would ensure that the young man found the motivation to fulfill his obligation. This was particularly true if the young man was from a rival town. And to drive the point home, these gangs were not just ruffians with fisticuffs. No, they went to battle bearing chains and whips and knives. They were not joking around. Franz Jägerstadter, it seems, was possibly involved in both of these traditions. He not only was said to be the leader of one such gang, but also appears to have made payments to support a child that he was rumored to father. The details of the support payments were corroborated by people who knew him personally, and though some people have said that he was not the father and simply supported the mother and child out of charity, whether he was fulfilling his duties as a father or acting out of charity, no one really knows, and Franz himself never left any clues. True love finally found Franz, however... In 1936, on Monday Thursday, otherwise known as Holy Thursday, or the Thursday before Easter, he married Franziska Schwaniger. And for their honeymoon, they went to Rome and received a papal blessing from Pope Pius XI, an extraordinary journey for a small-town Austrian peasant. 
Franz's marriage to Franziska completed something of a spiritual shift that had been going on inside Franz's soul for some time. Author and sociologist Gordon Zahn, who conducted the interviews from those who personally knew Franz, noted that around the year 1934, Franz was turning into a, quote, new man. What they meant was his religious piety had begun to shift towards the ultra-serious. To borrow a phrase, while St. Radegund was full of Catholics, Franz Jägerstadter, too, was Catholic, but even more so. Shortly after the wedding, the old fault lines of Europe were once again on the move, and the primary mover of the change was the previously mentioned Austrian-born man just 20 miles from St. Radegund. The Nazis, under the leadership of Adolf Hitler, were on the rise. Austria's relationship to other German states is complex and ancient. As the 19th century ended and the German Empire rose, the Austro-Hungarian leaders and thinkers were inclined to cozy up to this new empire. We all know, of course, both empires wilted to nothing in the blood and pestilence of the World War I era, with both emerging as newly formed yet separate republics. By 1930, Adolf Hitler becomes Chancellor of Germany, and Austrian reunification, or Anschluss, becomes official Nazi policy. In 1934, the Austrian Chancellor is assassinated by Austrian Nazis, and by the time Franz and Franziska are honeymooning in Rome, Anschluss seems inevitable. It was just a matter of when and how. The Nazi party and ideology had been gaining traction in Austria for the better part of a decade by offering modern solutions to modern problems. And of course, with the Nazi party came the charming Nazi youth groups overflowing with members. This conversion to Nazi ideology by the Austrian citizenry became a significant point of contention for Jägerstadter. Being the new man that he now was, his piety had charted for him a new life that would devote him entirely to his family and to his faith. Where once he loved to gamble and play cards, he now abstained. When tending the fields and livestock, many people heard him filling the mountain air with church hymns. And he was noted at one point to regret that by plowing a certain field, he would thus destroy the wildflowers. For they were God's creations, and they were good. Before long, he became a daily communicant. He developed a deeply contemplative prayer life, and he fasted for months at a time. As the Nazi movement grew, bringing virtually atheistic ideology to a traditionally Catholic people, Franz's loathing for them grew in kind, and he publicly spoke against them and its leader at every available occasion. Many citizens noticed that Franz had stopped visiting the inn where he was known to grab a few drinks with the other men of the town, leading to speculation that in his newfound piety he had become something of a teetotaler. Franziska actually corrected the record here, noting that her husband had his favorite drinks at home. He only avoided the inn because he got into too many political arguments. And it was no secret that when somebody would exclaim, Hail Hitler, Franz would respond just as loud and for all to hear, Fooey Hitler. For Franz Jägerstadter, he somehow recognized the Nazis for who they really were. He could see their long game. He knew their ideology was one of destruction and death. Somehow, he just knew it, and he also knew that he could never be one of them. Franz's own godson recalled that the only reason he never joined the Hitler youth groups was due to his godfather's influence. On March 11, 1938, the German Wehrmacht began marching across the Austrian border with no resistance. The Austrian government happily capitulated, and the crowds cheered on the arrival of their new overlords. When the townspeople were required to vote on legalizing the unification, Jägerstadter was the only person in his village to vote no. Unification, of course, passed with overwhelming support. Anschluss was complete. In his recollection of these monumentous events for his country, Jägerstadter said, quote, 
I believe that what took place in the spring of 1938 was not much different than that Monday, Thursday, 1900 years ago, when the Jewish crowd was given a free choice between the innocent Savior and the criminal Barabbas. End quote. It would be unfair to say that everyone who voted for the Nazis was a Nazi supporter. Everyone simply believed that any no vote would put you on a list somewhere in Berlin to be dealt with later, and they weren't wrong. Within a few days of the Nazis taking control of Austria, over 70,000 people were arrested and thrown into makeshift concentration camps. And so, for the next few years, Franz Jägerstadter lived as an unnoticed rebel and an unwilling member of the Third Reich. He minded his own business, tilling his own fields, raising his crops, and caring for his wife and children. But still, he could not help but speak his mind on matters of faith. He reminded his pastor that he should include more sermons about the pains of purgatory so that the parishioners strove for perfection instead of just living a good-enough life. Once, after a funeral for a soldier who had given his life for the fatherland, he chided the pastor for being too ceremonious of the glories of military life, that it provided too many occasions for sin against God, especially in the service of Hitler. While some of this may sound like petty overzealousness, it's important to remember that Jägerstadter was acting out of love for his fellow townspeople of St. Radegund. All the parishioners remember Jägerstadter as the devoted church sexton who always turned down payment in return for his efforts of coordinating the funerals and burials of their faithful departed. Further, for his time as church sexton, he solemnly grieved at the side of the families. He wept with them. He prayed with them. And the seriousness with which he carried out these duties left a lasting impression on everyone. As the war against the Allies deepened, Little red collection boxes were passed around the town to aid the Nazi war effort. Franz Jägerstadter's refusal to put any money in these boxes was so public and so loud that before long, the box bearers simply began skipping over him. Although, it was noticed that Franz did make a one-time donation to the little red boxes. When one passed in front of him, he asked what this one was for, and he was told that it was to benefit the local police. To the shock of everyone around, he took some money out of his pocket and dropped it in, saying that he at least owed them something because he had given them so much trouble in the past. Not only did Jägerstadter refuse to give to the party, but he also refused to take from it. One particularly bad harvest season was made worse by a hailstorm destroying most of the crops in St. Radegund. The German government launched a program of emergency funds to help with the loss, and of all the farm peasants to be offered aid, Jägerstadter alone refused every penny of it. Contrary to this humble Catholic peasant's quiet resistance, Cardinal Theodore Initzer the highest church authority in Austria, defied the Vatican's policy of neutrality and lent his public support for the Nazi occupation. He even signed a declaration of his position with the rest of the Austrian bishops that ended with the words, Hail Hitler. In April of 1938, Cardinal Initzer ordered the churches around Austria to honor Hitler's birthday by flying swastikas and ringing bells. Now, hindsight being what it is, it's important to remember that in 1938, many people did not know exactly where the Nazi train was leading them. This, of course, doesn't totally excuse complicitness, at least in my opinion, because their racial ideology was very well known. It's, in fact, what attracted many people to them. Cardinal Initzer himself found out rather quickly that he may have backed the wrong horse when just months after his public support, the Nazi party began arresting clergy and shutting down his churches all over Austria. And the day inevitably came when Franz Jägerstadter, along with many Austrian men, were drafted into the Fuhrer's German Wehrmacht. At 33 years old, he was sent to the garrison at Enns, Austria, for training. And upon conscription, 
we know that at some point he would have been required to take the Hitler oath, which reads as follows, quote, I swear to God, this holy oath, that I shall render unconditional obedience to the leader of the German Reich and people, Adolf Hitler, Supreme Commander of the Armed Forces, and that as a brave soldier, I shall at times be prepared to give my life for this oath, end quote. Franz Jägerstadter, from what we can tell, refused to take the oath. It's interesting to note that this refusal didn't immediately disqualify him from training for the next few years, probably due to either oversight or sympathetic Austrians simply looking the other way. During the long months apart in the year of 1940, there are dozens and dozens of letters between Franz and Franziska, mostly about farming issues and local politics, and they're written in the typical formalities you would expect of the period. Dearest wife, dearest husband, but there's an intimacy there too. Over and over again, Franz continually expresses his desire to come home, to be with his family, to go to Mass. He even brags in one letter about escaping barracks one day and scaling a wall to attend Mass, rejoicing in the event to his wife. Franz did come home in between training leaves, and he was even able to receive four deferments from service, probably due to him being necessary as a farmer. But the longer that the war against the Allies lasted, and the more evil that was done in the name of the Third Reich, the more likely it was that Franz would have to fight on their behalf, something he couldn't square with his conscience or his faith. According to the letters between he and his wife, Franziska was well aware of her husband's refusal to take the Hitler oath, but thus far it hadn't caused any major issues. What had changed, however was Franz's certainty of his own views on serving the Nazis. As 1942 turned into 1943, it was clear to everyone that Germany was losing the war. America, with its endless resources, was now in the fight. British General Montgomery had kicked Rommel out of Africa, and the Soviet Union had secured victory in Stalingrad, inflicting over half a million casualties on the Wehrmacht. To prevent any dissent in the German leadership, Hitler began executing members of his inner circle. Then, to replace the lost manpower on the front lines he began calling up soldiers from all over Deutsch Österreich. On February 22nd, 1943, Franz received the inevitable letter calling him up for service. He was again to report to Enns Induction Center in three days. By this time, just about everyone in St. Radegund was well aware of Franz's intentions, for St. Radegund was a small town, and there were no secrets. That night, Franz packed his bags for a journey that, no matter what decision he made, would probably be his last. He would either die serving the Fuhrer or die opposing him. The next morning, he woke early and no doubt kissed his three little girls goodbye, and he probably gave his wife a final embrace that no words could possibly do justice to. A local town woman happened to be looking out her window on this frosty morning and saw Franz Jägerstadter walking up the road, shoulders drooping, head hanging low, and as he reached the crest of the hill that overlooked St. Radegund, she described him stopping, turning, and taking a long, cold look back at his beloved city, the only home he'd ever known. A farmer friend of Franz, who was standing outside his residence as he passed by, called out to him, quote, Go with God, Franz. And Franz replied quietly with, quote, You'll see no more of me. End quote. Records have it that, after arriving at Enns, Franz lodged with a local priest while he waited for his turn at the induction center. On March 1st, his time had come to report for duty. But before he did, he penned a letter to his wife, quote, Dear wife, warm greetings once again from me. Today, I shall dare to take this difficult step. I am once again grateful for all the love and faithfulness and sacrifice you have shown me and the whole family, and 
that you are continuing to show me. Continue to help the poor for as long as you can. Care for the children, and also for your father. Do not be angry with mother, even if she does not understand us. Should it be God's will that I do not see you again in this world, then hope that we shall see each other soon in heaven. End quote. When Franz's turn at induction into the Wehrmacht came up, he calmly told the officer that he refused to fight for Hitler and the Third Reich. And as quick as he had uttered the words, Franz was arrested and sent to Linz prison. His defiance against his fellow Austrian with ambitions of world domination had begun. Jägerstatter's decision, as I said, had been well known for some time, and most people just couldn't wrap their minds around his thinking. How could a father of three possibly come to such a conclusion? Obviously, not every Austrian who took the Hitler oath actually believed what they said. They just thought it'd be better to be yes-men and hope to survive the war so they could return to their families. What good would one act of defiance do in the grand scheme of a world war anyway? Certainly not enough to leave their families destitute without a father and a husband. Every priest that Jägerstatter consulted with during the war and leading up to his call to duty, including his own pastor, reminded him of his moral obligations to his family. Jägerstatter even paid a visit to the local bishop himself for clarification. And Bishop Fleischer of Linz recalls, quote, I knew Jägerstatter personally, since he spent more than an hour with me before his scheduled induction. To no avail, I spelled out for him the moral principles defining the degree of responsibility borne by citizens and private individuals for the act of civil authority. I reminded him of his far greater responsibility for his own state and life, in particular for his family. End quote. Amazingly, the one person who never really tried to talk him out of his decision was the one who knew him best. Quote, Much beloved husband, I received your letter yesterday. We do God's will even when it brings us sadness. We do God's will even when we do not understand it. I had still a small hope that you would change your decision during your trip because you have compassion for me. I shall pray to the loving mother of God that she will bring you back to us if it is God's will. Your three girls are always asking about you. May God protect you. See you again soon. I shall constantly pray for you. End quote. The most concise argument Jägerstatter made for his position was in a letter he wrote to his pastor just before he was arrested. Quote, Reverend Father, I must tell you that you will probably be losing another of your parishioners soon. Today, I received the induction notice and am ordered to report. However, no one can dispense me from what I view as the danger to the health of my soul that this gang, the Nazis, presents. I cannot change my decision. Christ did not praise Peter for denying him merely out of fear of men. How often would I probably have to repeat that denial, serving with this outfit? Everyone tells me, of course, that I should not do what I am doing because of the danger of death. But it seems to me that the others who do fight are not completely free of this same danger of death. If so many terrible things are permitted by this terrible gang, I believe it is better to sacrifice one's life right away than to place oneself in the grave danger of committing a sin and then dying. I beg you to remember me at Mass as long as you are permitted to offer Mass. And from the bottom of my heart, I ask you to pray for me too, and forgive me any trouble that I have ever caused you. May God not abandon me in my last hour. God and the Blessed Virgin will surely not abandon my family when I can no longer protect them myself. Things will be very hard for my dear ones. This leave-taking will be most difficult. Your deeply indebted sexton greets you from his heart. May God protect you and all other priests. End quote. Upon entering his prison cell in Linz, 
The only thing Jägerstadter knew for certain about his future was that he would not be freed. Being left to rot in obscurity or being marched behind the building and shot in the head were both very real possibilities for him. For the next two months, we know, thanks to his correspondence with his wife, that Franz got along well with his cellmates. He told his wife, in fact, that he felt he was doing much spiritual good for the men who were locked up with him, although he didn't go into particulars. Much of Franz and Franziska's letters, again, covered the mundane but necessary discourse on farm life. Which crops to plant and where? What fields to cut and when? Which neighbors and family could be counted on for help? Yet always ending with a hint of guilt at the situation he put his family in. Quote, I am always troubled by the fear that you have much to suffer on my account. Forgive me everything if I bring injustice down upon you. End quote. Suddenly, though, Francisca received a glimmer of hope in one of her husband's letters. He informed her that he may be given the ability to serve in the medical corps, which satisfied both him with the fact that he could do God's work, while at the same time fulfilling his requirements laid down by the Wehrmacht. This part in the Jägerstatter story is curious in that it would stand to reason that he would still have to take the Hitler oath, something he already demonstrated he was unwilling to do. Little is known about how this offer of medical service even came up. Was it requested by Jägerstatter or offered to him? No one knows. But what we do know is that this option never came to fruition for Jägerstatter, and it never really comes up again. Jägerstatter did find some room for small doses of humor despite his situation. Around the middle of April, he notes that the guards distributed some books for the prisoners to read. Among them, he found a book that no one else wanted to read, a collection of sermons by St. John Chrysostom. Quote, Although most everyone here likes to read to kill time, they were perfectly happy to leave this book to me. End quote. As the weeks dragged on in Linz, Franz found solace in relating his own sacrifice to that of another. Quote, Especially now, in this season of Lent, we should be mindful that even though we may still have to suffer much, it is, nevertheless, nothing like what Christ and his mother suffered in their innocence. End quote. As Easter of 1943 dawned, while Franz lay in prison, he wrote to his daughters reminding them to pick flowers, to roll Easter eggs, and to do all the things that they would do to celebrate the holy day as if he were there. Weeks earlier, one of his daughters sent him an apple, and he saved it for this day. It was his Easter feast. In prison, I imagine it's the little miracles that get one through the day. For a Catholic as devout as Franz Jägerstadter, it must have pained him to the core that he would not be able to attend Mass during Holy Week. And yet, quote, I am, I think, always a child of luck. On Holy Thursday morning, I asked again about going to the church on Easter. But again, it was not approved for me. Instead, however, I was promised a visit from a priest who arrived that same afternoon. And thus, I was able to fulfill my Easter duty even here, for the priest had brought the Blessed Sacrament along. On Friday, then, others had asked again for the priest, and as a result, I was able to receive Holy Communion once more on Saturday morning. End quote. But little did Franz know, the prison at Linz was not to be his home for long. On May 4th, at 10.15 in the morning, soldiers burst into his cell and loaded him onto a train for Berlin, the heart of the Third Reich. The last line of the last letter from Linz reads, quote, Do not worry any more about me. The Lord will not desert me in the future either. End quote. A former prisoner of Linz and cellmate of Jägerstadter recalls these precious last days together. Quote, In January of 1943, along with three other Frenchmen, I was taken to the military prison at Linz and thus made the acquaintance of Mr. Franz Jägerstadter. Since, like him, we would not take the oath, we developed a special friendship right away. 
I was in the same cell with Franz for a long time, and I can assure you that we found a good friend in Franz who, in the darkest moments, was always able to find a word of comfort and always managed to give us his last piece of bread from the meager morning and evening meals we took in the cell, while he satisfied himself with a little black coffee. His faith in God and justice was beyond measure, and thus one saw him sunk in prayer the whole day through, his rosary his constant companion. In the same way, the Easter communion we received together in April 1943 brought him great happiness. End quote. On the evening of the 4th, Franz arrived at Tegel Prison, just outside Berlin. For the next few weeks, correspondence between him and Franziska lessens, probably due to increased security in Berlin. But those letters he does write are filled with ever-increasing and heart-wrenching instructions for his wife after he is gone, and for his daughters, and how they must continue to obey their mother. On May 24th, we know Franz Jägerstadter stood before a military tribunal in Berlin proper, and he was questioned, and he makes a little reference to this event in his letters, sort of casting it aside as nothing of importance. Thankfully, back in the 1960s, author Gordon Zahn was able to contact the attorney who represented Jägerstadter, and who shed some light on the legal proceedings. Friedrich Leo Feldman had found work representing military tribunal defendants under Hitler's Germany. The Jägerstadter case simply fell into his lap. Nonetheless, Feldman took saving his new client's life deadly serious. He first tried to convince Jägerstadter to change his mind, telling him that millions of other Catholics, including bishops and cardinals, had found it morally acceptable to support the Nazis. When this failed, Feldman turned to theological arguments to sway his clients. He told him to render to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. But this again failed. Feldman also failed in using Jägerstadter's family as emotional leverage too. Jägerstadter simply maintained that the oath was a lie and he would not lie. On July 6, 1943, moments before Franz's trial was to begin, Feldman privately approached the lead officer of the tribunal, and he told him that his client was unusually obstinate, and that he was no doubt sincere in his beliefs, and further, he was perfectly willing to die for them. He then asked that the officer speak directly with Jägerstadter alone, that perhaps they might sway his client before the trial even begins. To Feldman's shock, they agreed. And so, there it was in a small room in Berlin that two high-ranking officers of the Wehrmacht sat with the simple Austrian peasant, Franz Jägerstadter. They began by reminding him that they alone held the power of life and death over him. They then went into a predictable monologue about his responsibilities to the fatherland, and Jägerstadter just calmly stated that he took moral objections to their entire regime and could not be a part of it. These officers themselves even tried threading the moral needle for Jägerstadter, telling him that there's a difference between voluntarily supporting the Nazis and compulsory service. Perhaps they were making excuses for themselves. Jägerstadter, par for the course, rebuffed their arguments. And as the conversation went on, Feldman noticed that the tone of the officers shifted from hardline military men talking down to a simpleton to a point where they were actually pleading and begging like children that Jägerstadter not force their hand. His unwavering sincerity in his position, his lamb-like demeanor, his calmness, his peace, his friendly voice, all of it profoundly affected these officers. They did not want to be responsible for the unjust execution of such an individual. Finally, the officers made an astounding offer to Jägerstadter, that if he simply withdrew his refusal to serve the Nazis, they would guarantee that he would never have to take up arms for them. But Jägerstadter again refused, saying that this would simply be another lie. When all their attempts failed, Jägerstadter's trial commenced. It was brief, formal, and impersonal. And he was tried under a German legal precedent that read as follows, quote, 
the death penalty shall be levied against anyone who publicly advocates or incites the refusal to perform the required service in the German army or one allied with it, or who otherwise openly seeks to weaken or undermine the desire of the German people or any allied with it to maintain its military effectiveness. End quote. After his trial, Franz wrote two more letters back home. The second and last had a special note for his three daughters, quote, My dear little ones, your photos brought me great happiness. Of course, it would be much better for me if I could see you again in person, but you should not let yourselves be disappointed just because your father never comes to tell you stories anymore. Today, there are many children whose fathers cannot come home now or who will never come again. I am very happy to see from others' letters that you are always praying diligently. I believe that you have already become much better and more obedient in other ways too. It would make me very happy if you could grow into good and brave children. On Corpus Christi Sunday, I thought of you especially. I would have loved to have seen you wearing your little crowns of flowers. Your devoted father greets you from far away. Stay healthy, all of you, and pray well until we meet again. End quote. But Jägerstadter's attorney was not done with his client's case just yet. He immediately wrote to Franz's pastor back in St. Radegund, Father Firthauer, and informed him of the execution sentence. He told him that legally the sentence is not binding, and if his client abandons what he calls, quote, his totally senseless position, he could still save his life. The attorney then pleaded that both priest and wife leave immediately for Berlin to convince Jägerstadter to give in, and they both boarded a train immediately. Father Firthauer and Franziska were brought to a waiting room in the prison that overlooked the courtyard. After about 30 minutes, a personnel truck pulled up and stopped. The back door was opened, and a group of soldiers leapt out and formed a circle. Jägerstadter, who was bound in chains, was shoved out of the truck so violently that he fell to the ground. At seeing her husband, Franziska screamed his name through the glass. Franz heard his wife, but he didn't know where it had come from, and so he jumped to his feet and began frantically looking around for her, but to no avail. Moments later, Franziska and Father Firthauer were brought to a cell, and Franz Jägerstadter, escorted by an armed guard, was then brought in. His wife had fresh food for her beloved husband, but the guard wouldn't permit him to take it, and after a mere 20 minutes of pleading from his priest, the meeting was over. Franziska knew that Franz had made this decision a long time ago, and for her part, she could not convince him to change his mind. Mostly, she just made the journey because she wanted to see her husband one last time. At the end of the meeting, Franz gave his wife some chocolates to give to his daughters, and Father Firthauer solemnly gave Franz his priestly blessing, and at last assured him that he was not committing a sin by following his conscience. Another priest, Dean Kruzberg, chaplain of Tegel Prison, had been watching Jägerstadter's journey closely. He congratulated him on the strength of his moral commitment, comparing him to a priest who had been executed the year before, who had also refused to pledge allegiance to Hitler. Kruzberg, who was documenting both cases, suggested to Jägerstadter that he write down a few lines, officially stating his position for posterity. Quote, These few words are being set down here as they come from my mind and my heart, and if I must write them with my hands in chains, I find that much better than if my will were in chains. He continues, quote, Just as those who believe in National Socialism tell themselves that their struggle is for survival, so must we, too, convince ourselves that our struggle is for the eternal kingdom. But with this difference, we need no rifles 
or pistols for our battle, but instead spiritual weapons. And the foremost among these is prayer. The true Christian is to be recognized more in his works and deeds than in his speech. The surest mark of all is found in deeds showing love of neighbor. To do unto one's neighbor what one would desire for himself is more than merely not doing to others what one would not have done to himself. Let us love our enemies, bless those who curse us, and pray for those who persecute us. End quote. Nearing midnight of August 8, 1943, a priest assigned to Berlin, Reverend Jachmann, who served as confessor to inmates in Berlin, walked into Franz Jägerstadter's cell. The inmate was awake, calm, and pleasant. The priest remembers that he offered no word of complaint, and on the desk, in the cell, was a piece of paper and a pen. All Jägerstadter had to do was sign that document and his life would be saved. The priest mentioned the document laying before Franz, who replied with a calm smile, saying, quote, I cannot and may not take an oath in favor of a government that is fighting an unjust war. End quote. The priest then offered Jägerstadter some devotional material to read, but Jägerstadter also turned that offer down, telling the priest that at this moment his soul was in union with God, and he did not want to distract from that. Reverend Jachman recalled, at this moment, Jägerstadter's countenance was one of such profound joy that he would never forget it as long as he lived. The next day, Reverend Jachman watched this same prisoner climb the scaffold with that same composure until the guillotine cleanly removed his head. That very evening, Reverend Jachman lodged with a group of nuns operating the Catholic Charities Hospital in Berlin. The Mother Superior, along with other nuns, had been reassigned there from an Austrian convent. When Reverend Jachman saw the sisters, he solemnly told them of the fate of Franz Jägerstadter, saying, quote, I can only congratulate you on this countryman of yours who lived as a saint and who has now died a hero. I say with certainty that this simple man is the only saint that I have ever met in my lifetime. End quote. This very same Mother Superior was able to locate the ashes and urn of Jägerstadter and sent one of her sisters to obtain and transport them personally. She brought them back to his beloved home of St. Radegund, where he was laid to rest in the church graveyard with a Christian burial. In the years that followed, the impression that Franz Jägerstadter had made on some of his cellmates began to surface in letters written to his widow, Franziska. Quote, he was never afraid to confess his faith openly in spite of the taunts of the guards and his fellow prisoners. Franz belongs, without question, to the heroes of our time, to the heroes of your homeland alongside men like Andreas Hofer and Gustav Palm, for like them, he too was a fighter to the death for faith, peace, and justice. And from another inmate, quote, I have not forgotten your husband, and I never will forget him. For he gave me a rosary in the prison at Linz. All passes over and goes by. Your children must be fully grown now. These children can safely say that their father died in God's friendship, for he prayed day and night. End quote. 6,000 feet above sea level, high in the clear hills of Austria and surrounding alpine regions, amid a natural beauty that most of us can only dream about, grows a small, delicate wildflower. 
Its furry white petals rise from the jagged limestone cliffs in star-like florets. And despite its delicate nature, it stands in defiance of the unrelenting oppression of high-altitude radiation, wind, and cold. An Austrian emperor picked one of these flowers for his wife. An Austrian empress adorned her hair with them for her portraits. Austrian soldiers wore the flowers on their collars. Legends tell of young Austrian men climbing, risking their lives to pick just one of these flowers for the woman they love. This small flower, the Edelweiss, in its clean and bright petals evokes for all Alpine peoples a spirit of courage, love, and homeland. Before leaving Lintz prison, a cellmate of Franz Jägerstadter, who is facing a death sentence, told Franz that his girlfriend was very fond of the flower. Franz then wrote to his wife, asking her to enclose an Edelweiss in her next letter, so that this young man may give his girlfriend one last gift, a token of his love. This story began with a dream by Jägerstadter, in which his countrymen were boarding a train to hell, even those of his beloved hometown of St. Radegund. And it's here, in St. Radegund, where author Gordon Zahn ends the story. Quote, St. Radegund is a village too small to have its own post office, almost too remote to be reached by normally scheduled means of transportation. Yet the tiny graveyard surrounding its centuries-old church are buried the ashes of a simple peasant who, in his heroic act of true rebellion, defied the tyrant who had brought all of Europe to its knees. Someday, it may even be a place of pilgrimage. you guys found the life of Franz Jägerstadter as moving as I did. Like I said, to have the sort of wisdom that he did to see where the train is going is probably the single most important reason to study history in the first place. If you did enjoy that episode and you found it worthy of a dollar, I would gladly take that dollar. You can become a patron of the show for as little as a dollar a month. If you go over to patreon.com slash history, there you can sign up for a dollar or two dollars, three dollars, whatever, whatever it is you feel that this show is worth or that you can afford. I really, really appreciate it. Your donation goes towards me purchasing research material and getting the, the podcast out there on the internet and on websites and things like that. It goes towards all the costs of production for these podcasts. 
Another way you can help me out is leave me a rating or review wherever you listen. Trust me when I say us indie history podcasters live and die by the ratings and reviews you guys leave. It makes our day. It puts smiles on our faces. And not only that, it affects the algorithm and it gets us bumped up the charts just a little bit. It helps us reach new audiences. So again, if you could, take a little bit of time and rate my podcast or rate somebody else's podcast, whoever your favorite podcaster is right now. If it's an indie podcaster, go and leave them a rating or review. You'll make their day. I also need to thank my kid sister, Courtney, for all the awesome cover work that she does that she's been doing now for a year and a half now. If you're in need of freelance design or artwork, you can find her stuff at cjdejulius.myportfolio.com. Go check it out. She's got an awesome portfolio. I also need to thank Larry Beekman for the really nice acoustic guitar version of Edelweiss that he was kind enough to let me use for this episode. If you go on YouTube and search Larry Beekman, you'll find his stuff. He also has a website, LarryBeekman.com, so there you can go and learn all about him. He's a really, really nice guy. And Larry, if you're listening, I certainly appreciate you letting me use your version of Edelweiss for this episode. I think it was a really nice way to end up. If you want to get a hold of me, you can reach me on Twitter. My handle is at sdejulius. If you want to send me an email, it's stephen.dejulius at gmail.com. Or you can send me a note on the show Facebook page. And so this has been Written in Blood History, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. And you'll be hearing from me in two weeks with an almost episode. See you later. I'm Allison Holland, host of the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast. Equipped with a microphone and a long-term fascination of the Kennedy family, I am joined by an incredible cast of experts, friends, and guests to take you on a fun, relaxed, yet informative journey through history and pop culture. From book references to fashion to philanthropy to our modern expectations of the presidency itself, you'll see that there is so much more to Kennedy than just JFK or conspiracy theories. Join me for the Kennedy Dynasty Podcast.